standing at the entrance to the old uh, Temple Gate in Jerusalem. Uh, an incredible city. This is where uh, the center of worship was for Israel. Uh, Jesus, uh, mother and father, would have brought him here as a child uh, to dedicate him and go right through these doors and come right up these steps. Uh, Jesus himself would have been here very regularly. In fact, in the last days of his life, he would have come up those steps and right through this door uh, to stand before uh, those that accused him and ultimately crucified not far from here. Uh, we know that this is the one place right here uh, that we can be confident that Jesus actually walked. I'm standing, perhaps, in the footsteps of Jesus. And as cool as that is, to be in the footsteps of Jesus, it's better that we live our lives every day walking as he would have walked, emulating the life that he lived, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Well, good morning. Who was that guy? It's like kind of an Indiana Jones there at, at the... Uh, at the Temple of, uh, not doom, but of hope. Listen, it's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now in the warehouse or the chapel or uh, live at one of our off-site campuses or all the way around the world. Uh, Ashley Crumpton, you said you're watching, so I want to say hi to you too uh, this morning or afternoon, whatever it happens to be in Japan. But uh, glad, glad to be here, really am. Uh, just a hair jet lag, so you guys give me some grace. Can you do that? Uh, flew in... Um, on Friday afternoon, and uh, last night my body thought that uh, it was morning just about every hour. You ever been there? So that's kind of kind of how that is. It had a had a great time, just an incredible time with about 50, uh, 52, I think, sea coasters who uh, went along, and we uh, just traveled all over Israel, literally uh, walking where Jesus walked, which was an incredible experience. Uh, things like uh, being on the Mount of uh, olives and taking communion in the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, uh, some of the some of the team was on uh, where Elijah had the meltdown uh, meltdown on Mount Carmel, and just seeing all that. It's somebody said it's like reading your Bible after the trip is like seeing it in Technicolor. You know, it's just like wow, it just jumps out at you. It was incredible. One of the neatest experiences we had was to be baptized in the Jordan River. Um, you know, I hadn't been baptized. I'd been baptized one time when I was about 10 or 12 years old and um, decided to be baptized, again, just reaffirming my faith and following Jesus in the Jordan River. It was an incredible experience, an, an experience of uh, uh, just community with God, community with one another. And uh, so today, we don't have the Jordan River, but at every campus, uh, you have an op opportunity to be baptized if you'd like to. really encourage you to, especially if you've made a commitment of your life, like at Easter or in, in the last little bit, or you want to re rededicate yourself to the purposes of God. Uh, at the, um, during the response time, uh, there'll be an opportunity uh, to go and be baptized. So I just wanted to bring that up. Now, would you agree uh, with this? If you do anything with a large group of people over an extended period of time, your patience will be tested. Anybody ever there? Yeah. Uh, you know, issues, logistic issues, you know, how do we move that many people from this place to this place? On-time issues, you know, how, how do we do it with everybody uh, on time? Uh, in Israel, uh, security issues tested your patience. Uh, you're in a country 
where all of your neighbors would just as soon you be gone. And so it's the highest security that I've ever been in. I mean, they've got, you know, layers and layers and levels of security at the airport on the way home. I felt like I was caught in a never-ending spin cycle of delays. One of my bags, a harmless bag, um, kept having to go through security over and over. And when you'd have to go through it over again, you have to stand in another line. And uh, so this is a couple of hours, you know, an hour and a half probably into it. And finally, they figured out what the problem was. Somebody had given me a picture of the, when I was there a year ago, um, and it had just a real cheap, you know, not an not expensive picture frame that had glass in it, just a picture of me and the group that was there a year ago. And that's what was setting off security. And so, uh, and, and, it, and it broke on the way home. So, you know, I could have gotten away with it, but just for, or saved a lot of grief just by, uh, just by not doing it there. But it, in, my, my patience was tested uh, the most severely in a most unusual way. Let me explain it to you. Our trip to Israel this year coincided with the most holy of Jewish holidays, the Passover. You familiar with Passover? Passover, you know, is, is the day that celebrates uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and uh, there's a big meal around it. It's the, the, the most sacred, the most holy of holidays, and now they've extended it from one day to seven days because they've included the Feast of Unleavened Bread in it. And what happens on this holiday is that the whole country just kind of slows down. I mean, we were there three or four days into Passover, uh, actually four or five days, and, and we were in Tel Aviv, which is a bustling city, and there was no traffic. I mean, it was incredible. The country just slows down. Now, I was aware of what happens on a Sabbath every week on Friday. Um, again, essentially, the whole country just settles down for about 24 hours. It's really a neat experience. It's an incredible experience as people anticipate the Sabbath, and, and then uh, it's, it's just like pulling the plug on, on activity, and it's something I, I, I wish that we had more of here in America. Well, when we were there, um, we were in uh, Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee on a Friday night of the Sabbath during Passover. So you had two things, Passover going on, you had Sabbath going on, so nothing happened, okay? And you had a lot of Jewish families for the Passover holiday that had come from Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or wherever, and they had come to the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of a nice, you know, destination area. And uh, so we're in this relatively small hotel and lots of Jewish families there. And um, hotels in Israel are interesting because they, they always have multiple, most of them have multiple elevators. And one elevator is designated as a Sabbath or Shabbat elevator, okay? And the reason it's a Shabbat elevator is because apparently Pushing buttons on the elevator constitutes work. And it, it kind of seemed funny to me. I don't want to make fun of it that much because I really enjoyed the culture. But uh, what you do is you avoid a Shabbat elevator because it stops at every floor automatically. Okay, you don't have to punch buttons. It stops at every floor on the way up, on the way down. And so I avoided those because I like getting to where I'm, I'm going to go. Well, we're in this little hotel, and they only had two elevators. And because it was both Sabbath and Passover, both of them became Shabbat elevators. So it's Friday night, and we're supposed to be at dinner at 7 o'clock with the team. For whatever reason, it was a little after 7 when I got on the elevator. I'm on the top floor, okay? And I climb onto the elevator, and there is a mother with a hyperactive 5-year-old, uh, Jewish mother, getting ready for the whole Sabbath dinner, kids excited, and we're 
And we're going one floor at a time. And then one floor more. 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 And it gets later and later. And I can feel like I'm starting to manifest. Okay? Um, I've got... I'm starting to sweat a little bit, you know? Get this little twitch thing going on. Vein in my neck starting to pop out just a little bit. I'm thinking angry thoughts. Let's get to the bottom of this elevator already. Take care of your kids. I'm late to dinner. It's so important. Now, suddenly I remembered that I would be speaking this weekend on the topic of love being patient and kind. (laughs) Have you ever been in a hurry? When it seemed like the whole world around you was in slow motion. Anybody ever been there? It's kind of where I was. And then then the absurdness, seriously, the absurdness of the situation flooded my being. I almost wanted to laugh out loud at myself because I am in the place where God gave the command to set aside the Sabbath, to slow down. And I'm in a hurry to get somewhere that an extra five minutes wouldn't matter, a hill of lentil beans. You know, and so that's kind of... That's funny. You know, that is funny. Come on. Get that. So, so, so what I want to do today is um, we're in a series called Love Is. And basically we're tracking through 1 Corinthians 13. And we're trying to get our arms around what, what is love about? Uh, how do you walk in love? Um, and in the, the passage this week, it, it begins kind of a blow-by-blow description of love. Last week was kind of an introduction to the love chapter, and this week is the blow by blow. Here's what love looks like. So what I want to do is I want to take the first two concepts, the t- first two words that describe love, and um, th- they're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. You do not have it on an outline sheet because this message was constructed in the middle of the night on an airplane on the way home. Okay, so give me a little grace on that too. We've got it up on the screen. You may want to jot a few notes uh, if you want to. But 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 just simply says this. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient on one hand and is kind. Two words that describe love. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about some things to remember when life around you, when you're in a hurry and life around you seems to be moving too slow. Let me give you three things. And here's, here's the first one is that when you are impatient, you're not being kind. Would you agree with that? When you are impatient, you're not being kind. I, I believe that those two words are not just random. They're tied together there for a purpose. One drives the other and the other feeds off the one. When you're impatient, you're not being kind. I want you to think about the last time you were impatient. What did it look like? So we're in, we're in Jerusalem and there is traffic. Now those are two words that go together too. Jerusalem traffic, because there's tourists everywhere, tour buses everywhere, traffic everywhere. And uh, there was a, a bus stop. We had just, just gotten off our bus and there was a bus stop that was picking up uh, some passengers, there was a line of car behind them, and the bus probably wasn't stopped for two to three minutes, okay? And somebody, either right behind him or a couple of cars back, laid on the horn. It's not just one of these, beep, beep, beep. It's one of these, okay? So I'm thinking, 
That's really helping things. You know, when you do that, just think about that. That, that helps a lot. It really does. Make, makes everybody peaceful, calm. Let's move faster. I pictured him. I, I just had this picture in my, you know, well-defined vein in the neck, anger and impatience personified. I imagined the words that were flowing through from their lips, whether they're English or Hebrew, uh, they would not be a pleasant person to be carpooling with at that point. And so then I, then I looked at the people that the bus was picking up, and it was picking up a group of elementary school students. Elementary school students. I thought, what a jerk. And I was right. Because impatient people are usually jerks. Would you agree with that? Well, you should. I happen to know one impatient person quite well. I see him in the mirror every morning. And when he's impatient, he's a jerk. I'm usually a pretty nice guy, but when I have to wait, I turn into something quite different. And impatience and kindness are two words that don't go together. You can't be impatient and be kind. He says love is patient and love is kind. Patience is an inner attitude, and kindness is the outer expression. The inner attitude, patience. If my inner attitude is patience, then the outer expression will be often kindness. If my inner attitude is impatience, it's going to be unkind. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says it like this. He says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever had one of those situations where you said something, you said, somebody caught you on, you said, well, I don't know where that came from. That's normally not like me. No, it is like you. It's the overflow of your heart. And if your heart is impatient, the overflow in your mouth are going to be words of unkindness because impatient people can't be kind. It's first thought. Here's the second one. Impatience is usually a problem with focus. Impatience is usually a problem with focus. Um, have you ever snapped a picture and got the focus all wrong? I mean, I, I, I did this several times uh, while I was over there. I lined something up, thought I had a great picture, you know, and what, what had happened was I had focused on a tree or a bush behind the people, and, and when it came out, the tree and the bush are in great focus, and the, the trivial... And, and the, the things that are important, the people or whatever I was trying to get, are blurred. That's what happens when you have a focus problem. And it usually happens when you're in a hurry and it ruins the picture. The obvious analogy is that life works the same way. When you're impatient, when you're in a hurry, your focus can get off. And trivial background issues are as clear as a bell. Trivial background, i got to get to, you know, I, I've, I've got to get, it, it can be anything. It can be anything. You can be impatient about, you know, you're, you're in a hurry to get married or you're in a hurry to have kids or you're in a hurry to get a job or you're in a hurry to get a promotion or you're in a hurry to get well. That's a hard one. You're in a, you're in a hurry, you know, 
to do economically better, whatever it happens to be. You're in a hurry to move. Those are the big things, the little things. I'm in a hurry to get to where I want to go. You're impatient, and when you are, your focus just gets on the things that are trivial rather than the things that matter, the things that are lasting, the things that make a difference. And so the trivial background issues are clear as a bell, and things that are important get blurred, and it ruins the picture because you've got to get the focus right. So here's the question. What do I do while I'm waiting? I mean, that's, that, that's what impatience is about. You're, you're always impatient when you're waiting on something. That's what kind of triggers it. I want it now. I, want, I, I should have had it by now. Or this should be moving or going or whatever. What do you do? Because you're going to be in those type situations. What do you do? What, what do you do while you're waiting? And Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 gives us very clearly what we should do. It says, fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts. You have control. Fix your thoughts. Refocus on what is true and honorable and right. What is true, what is honorable, what is right. That's what I put my focus on. So what's true in this situation? What can I fix my thoughts on? Let me give you two things, and this will help you regardless of what you're waiting on right now. Maybe you're waiting on one of your kids to kind of, you know, take the next step, whatever it is. Turn three, you know, or uh, (laughs) get the concepts at school or whatever it happens to be. What do you fix your thoughts on? Two things. Number one, God is in control. God is in control. Control. Regardless of what I'm waiting on, where I am, God hasn't forgotten me. God is in control. Theologically, that's called um, the uh, uh, sovereignty of God. Sovereignty. It means that God is the ultimate king. God can do what he wants, when he wants, wherever he wants. Okay? He is in control. Right now, apparently, God wants you waiting right where you are. That's a hard one. But that's what it means. God is, if you're waiting, God is in control. He could change this situation. He hasn't. There must be a purpose. Psalm 37 and verse 23 says, The steps of the godly are directed by the Lord. The steps of the godly, are directed by the Lord. You're right where you are. You, you might have thought it was the wrong turn. Uh, I missed something somewhere. Maybe you did. Don't know. But the steps of the godly, it says, even in wrong terms, are directed by the Lord. Next part of the verse says this. He delights. He doesn't just care. He delights in the detail in every detail of their lives. It says, though they stumble, it's when you grumble, when you're impatient. It's when you, out of the rebound, choose wrongly in a relationship. It's it's when you don't make the right choice, he says. When they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord holds them by his hands. 
See, that, that, that's easy for me to picture because I've got all these grandkids, you know. They all want to ride with Papa. I want to walk with Papa. We hold hands. And I'll say, jump, and they'll jump, and we'll run. And sometimes they stumble, and they fall, and they're going the wrong direction. And what holds them up? Papa's got them by the hand. He says, you have a Father God that when you stumble, when you make wrong choices, when you, when you have these waiting room situations that get the best of you, he's got you by the hand. He knows where you are. He'll use whatever it is that you're going through for your betterment. In fact, earlier in that chapter, Psalm 37 and verse 7 says, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Boy, that's fun to do, isn't it? Let's just wait patiently for God to act. Well, he will. And the impatience is going to impact you, not him. You can't go, God act. No, that just irritates everybody around you. Wait patiently for God to act, he says. Don't worry about the evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. That's part of what drives our impatience. Here's this guy over here. You know, he's, he, he doesn't love God or she doesn't love God nearly as much or she's not even trying as hard as I am. Yeah, she gets the promotion. She gets this. She gets that. She gets the date. Whatever it happens to be, and it just drives this craziness inside. He says, no, you know, Wait patiently for God. Don't look at all that stuff. That, that stuff will work itself out. You wait patiently for God. So what do I fix my thoughts on? Number one, God is in control. Number two, while I'm waiting, who can I help while I'm here? Who can I help while I'm here? Since I'm waiting and apparently it's in the will of God, I might as well look around and be a blessing to someone else. That makes patience have a purpose. Do you see what I'm saying? Because there's other people around. You go, and that takes your focus off of your own um, brand of pain. So when you're impatient, you're not being kind. Impatience is usually a focus problem. Let me give you a third thing about love is patient and kind. Kindness always has a payoff. That's what's cool about this scripture. Patience is hard. It really is. There's no easy way around. It's hard. None of us like waiting. But if you will be patient, the resulting kindness that manifests itself has a payoff. Um, one of the most moving things that we did while we were in Israel was kind of a last-minute thing that was added. On our last day, we visited the Holocaust Memorial. Um, we, we had to get up way early. Um, it was an incredibly moving experience. I, I mean, 52 people, various degrees of, you know, emotion. But I think everybody was weeping, everybody in that room. I know, I know when I did, um, we, we went into, um, this is one of the last rooms that we went into. Uh, it was this kind of big square room. And um, on the walls, it had kind of like a, a shelves, kind of like a library. And it was about three-quarters of the way full, two-thirds of the way full. The shelves were with books that looked identical. And what they had on the books were the names of over four million people who had been murdered during the Holocaust. Four million. Think about that. Four million people. And yet there were six million people who were 
exterminated, murdered during the Holocaust, and so that thus the empty shelves. And what they're trying to do is find the names of, of every one of them, and there's just kind of an urgency to get it done because we're getting further and further from that date, and there are people out there who will never be remembered, who are murdered during this thing. And, um, and, and you, you walk into the room, you've got these shelves all around, and then you've got kind of this cone thing above you that's full of pictures and kind of identification cards, and then below you, uh, under, right underneath that cone is another cone that goes into the ground, but this cone is rock, and then down in the bottom there's this reflecting pool that you can't see yourself, but you can see the cone, and it's kind of a, a, a fading away of those pictures, and it's supposed to help you to, to get, get the emphasis that, that you've got to remember, you've got to remember. And as our, our guide, who was, had been with us all week, and we had two guides, we had a um, Mark, from here in the United States, who's a Christian, incredibly intelligent, PhD in biblical studies in Hebrew, and, and then a Jewish guide who, not a Christian, he was a Jew, about 41 years old, just a passionate guy. We all grew to love him. And, and he's sharing with us, and, and he's saying, you gotta remember, you gotta remember, you gotta remember. And I looked up, and as I looked up at one of these pictures, I saw twin girls that looked like my little twin granddaughters. And I thought about them. And I just was a pile. I just began to, began to weep. It was an emotional, emotional experience. That, that the whole Holocaust Museum walks you through step by step, asking you, how could this happen? What attitudes led to this point? And how can it be avoided in the future? And so, and so we're, we're, we're standing in front of a display of Auschwitz, the, the, the murdering field, the murdering grounds where hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were killed and and uh, our, our guide led us through some history on that and said, at, at a certain point, about 1943, I think, the Americans knew about Auschwitz. They, they found out about it. And he said, why didn't they do anything about it? Why didn't they bomb this place? He said, you know, you, you, you say, well, maybe innocent people would have died. He said, no. He said, I'm Jewish. If I would have been in that place, I would have gladly died knowing that Hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved in the future. Why didn't you do anything about it? And he just penetrating question. And at the moment that he was in his presentation there, a siren went off. Just a haunting sound for 60 to 120 seconds. And we knew it was going to happen that day because we happened to be in Jerusalem, or actually in Israel, and we were in Jerusalem, on the very day of the national kind of remembering of the Holocaust. It was Holocaust Memorial Day, and, and the whole country, uh, when the horn goes off at about 10 o'clock in the morning, whether you're driving a car, whether you're walking somewhere, you pull over, you stop, and you reflect to remember. It was just a, an incredibly moving thing. And we are, listen to this, we are in the Holocaust Museum on Holocaust Memorial Day, and here's the incredible point. We were all alone. This place usually is jam-packed with people. I was there last year. It was just jam-packed with people. We, 52 people from Seacoast Church, are in the Holocaust Museum on Holocaust Memorial Day all alone. All alone. Let me tell you how that happened. Uh, the night before, they had a major celebration, or not celebration, but memorial time there, where prime ministers came and all kinds of people who te gave testimony to it. I tried to watch on television. I couldn't understand the Hebrew, but every television station, like the NBC, ABC, CBS of our world, Fox, they were all on the same thing, like a 
like you would on a president's speech. And then other stations, movie stations, were playing Holocaust Memorial movies. Big deal. That night, a wind blew and knocked over a, uh, a light pole, and it killed two young Israeli soldiers there, right, right where we were. And, and so the next morning we came, and the security was unbelievable. They said, this is prime minister-style security. We, we went through like five, maybe six checkpoints, and at every checkpoint they told us, no, you can't come in. And our guide would go up, and he would argue with them in Hebrew, and they would go, okay, and they'd let us through to the next one. Same thing, no, you can't come in. It's closed. And we'd go through, and we'd go through. Why? Because if their enemies were going to disrupt Israel, this is the place and this is the time that they would do it right here. So finally we get to the last checkpoint area and we're, we're in and, and again, a long argument ensues and then finally the girl who's in charge says, okay, and she motions me to come forward. And so I, I come forward and he says, this is the pastor of all of these people. And she says to me very matter-of-factly, do you know everybody in your group? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. She said, do you know their names? I thought, ooh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> and so trying not to be, you know, too kind of funny about the thing, I just said, you know what? I have several kids and lots of grandkids, and I don't remember their names, you know, a lot of times. She said, okay. She said, here's what I want you to do. She said, we're going to march them by you. You're going to stand right here by me. We're going to march them by you. You're going to look at each one and then look at me and you're going to answer the question, do you know them? And then you answer either yes or no. What they were trying to do is make sure that nobody had gotten in. And so I, I sent word to our group, don't anybody do anything funny. This is not the time for jokes, nothing, because they'll, you know, they, they don't play with security in Israel. So our people were walking by. I felt incredible power. It, it, I, <laughs> I felt like the, the thought that came through my mind was Jesus, you know, when the Bible says that in the last, end times, whatever, that, that we'll, we'll march before the Father, and Jesus, for, to some, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I want to go, depart from me, I don't know them. Take them off, you know. Actually, I was just nervous as could be, and they'd march by, and I'd go, yes, I know them. Yes, I know them. Yes, I know them. And so, and so after we did that, I asked our... Jewish guy, and I said, how did we get in here? I mean, th this is incredible. How did we get in here on this day? Only ones in the place at that point. And he said, you know, Israel is a fairly small country. And if your family, and it's fairly new, you know, 1947. He said, if, you, if your family goes back a ways, the chances are you know a lot of people. And he said, in my case, I feel like I have sown enough good so that at a crucial time like this, that good has been multiplied back to me. In other words, he, he somehow communicated that he knew the people or he knew somebody and every, everyone that would ask him a question would give him favor because of the goodness that he had sown in relationship in the past. And I thought about that. See, if you, love is patient and love is kind. If you patiently walk in goodness to enough people over a long enough period of time, you will ultimately receive and reap a harvest of favor at just the right time. 
because kindness has a payoff. And it's just not a theory of mine. Let me give you a scripture, Hebrews 12, 11, that I had a revelation on this week that I've never had on before. I never quite understood it. Revelation 12, 11. Let me give you the context of the scripture. Scripture's talking about the discipline of the Lord. It says that God disciplines his kids. If you're not getting disciplined, you might not be a part of the family. And, and, and he says, just as a, a father disciplines their kids, so your heavenly father disciplines you. And then in verse 11, he says this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let me go, let me go here with it. Patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Would you agree with that? Galatians 6 talks about patience being a, or Galatians 5 talks about patience being a fruit of the Spirit. It is also a discipline that you walk in. You know, there are certain disciplines that you walk in that produce certain things. If you walk in patience, it's a discipline because it's not the normal thing to do. It is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's something that you choose to walk in. It is a discipline. Would you agree with that? It is not pleasant at the time. Sometimes it's unpleasant for you to wait when you're going, God, why do I have to wait? It's time. Or maybe you're not even thinking about God. You're just frustrated, and it's unpleasant at the time. But if you choose to walk in patience, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. What does that mean? A harvest of peace is easy to understand. If you're patient and you walk in kindness, then you receive from God the gift of peace. It comes, it comes to you. The peace comes to you. It's not something you stir up yourself. It's, it's something that God gives. It's, it's, it's a gift of peace. In fact, in the Bible, it says that sometimes he will give you peace that passes all understanding. It's not something you can just conjure up yourself. It's something that you get a harvest of. A harvest of peace comes. Well, what about a harvest of righteousness? When you think about a harvest of righteousness, you don't think about it coming. You think about, in fact, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to understand. It's a little bit hard to understand. In fact, in New Living Translation, which I read a lot, it translated as a harvest of right living, and I'm not sure that captures it. That if, if, you, you know, if you walk in the discipline of patience, then you'll have a harvest of peace coming this way and a harvest of right living coming from your direction. It Never quite stood until this week I, I got an insight. Here, here's what it was. We're, at the, uh, we're in Jerusalem, and we're at the Western Wall. A lot of Americans call it Wailing Wall. That's very offensive to them. It's the Western Wall. It's uh, like the only wall, or one of the only walls of the temple that um, Herod built in uh, Jesus' time that is still there, and you can see it. And... Um, and, and Jews are going to the wall to pray for the peace of Israel and, and, and that the temple would be restored up on top of this, which is just, you know, maybe 60 feet up. And the temple mount is kind of controlled by uh, the Arabs and they have a mosque, a couple, three mosques up there. And, and they're praying that it would be restored at some day. They can't, can't go up there. So you just see fervent prayer. And I went and I put my hand on the wall and prayed and it just... An incredible experience. But as, as we were there, a lot of tourists are there. Beggars were there because it was a great place to, to do that. And when they would beg, they'd put out their hands, and here's what they would call out. Righteousness. Righteousness. 
Right? I didn't know what that meant, so I asked our guy, why are they calling righteousness? He said, because in the Jewish mindset, you've got to understand, everybody that wrote the Bible were Jews, okay, except for the possi- possibly, uh, possibly uh, is it Luke, who was uh, possibly not, but everybody else were Jews. So it's a Jewish mindset, Jewish mindset. And righteousness means charity or generosity. So when they hold out their hands saying righteousness, that's saying, would you give me, would you give me charity? Would you give me, would you be generous to me? So that's kind of what it means. So, so listen to this. When you submit yourself to the discipline of patience, first you'll be a much nicer, kinder person because impatient people are not kind. And in the same regard, patient people, I believe, can be kind. You will find greater focus. And over time, you will reap a harvest of blessing, a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of generosity at just the right time from others. Will be, other people will be outrageously kind and outrageously generous to you if you'll just be patient. How many of you believe that if we would be more patient and then kind, it would be a good thing in our families? What if we all did that? You think that'd be a good thing? What about in our neighborhood? If we were to walk in this discipline of patience and therefore being kinder people, do you think that would be a better testimony to the living God? What about in the business world? What about in our politics? What about in our country? What if we all did that? What if we all took seriously this command to walk in love and thereby be patient and kind? I think the world would be a better place, don't you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your goodness and your kindness to us. You aren't impatient, but you're kind. Love is just a reflection and an expression of who you are. God, I just pray in the next few moments that you would challenge us to greater levels of love. Love in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships. There are some of us right now that are really struggling with some impatience and some frustration. Oftentimes frustration is just a signal that there's impatience going on. God, I pray that we'd be able to bring that to you, to trust you submit our lives to you. So in the next few minutes, would you challenge us? Would we respond? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.